The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Um, Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian, Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Show. The Tom Sumner Program.com. Now, when a virus comes along that's spreading like a plague, and POTUS and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague, well, then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well, unless you want to bid our free society farewell. There is a super bad transmittable contagious awful virus And if we don't act quick and social distance it will mire us In a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July A super bad transmittable contagious awful virus And if you got a better cough in your arm And if you got a better <coughs> Now back in 1918 influenza had its run But half the docks were busy overseas with World War One. Today we have mass media and scientists to say If you don't want this virus well then stay six feet away Super damn important that we practice isolation Cause we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation It's super damn important that we practice isolation if we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised. Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us. In a stretch of quarantine, the last until July. A super bad, transmittable, Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. 
for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com From the Tom Sumner Show Oh Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is the author of 22 books, including acclaimed biographies of Frank Capra, John Ford, and uh, Steven Spielberg, two other books on uh, Orson Welles. We're going to be talking about Orson Welles and um, with uh, the author of Whatever Happened to Orson Welles, a portrait of an independent um Career. Career. Thank you. Thank you. Um, anyway, my uh, my guest is named Joe uh, Joseph McBride. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, well, good to be on your show. Thank you. Whatever did happen to Orson Welles? It was kind of like well, the Halloween thing and <laughs> Citizen Kane. And, and that's the thing. Most people know Orson Welles from the classic radio show, and, yeah. and they know Citizen Kane. I think most people will, you know, get a little glint in their eye if you say rosebud but yeah. you know aside from that how much work did he really amass well it's funny when when you mentioned the war of the worlds uh when i met him in the early 70s i mentioned that i'd read the associated press advanced obit of him and he wasn't too thrilled to hear that and I told him it had started with 18 paragraphs on the War of the Worlds, and then it got into his other work, which he was not happy to hear about because it's very disproportionate. I think that the common um, uh, wisdom is that, uh, conventional wisdom, is that he he made one great film and that was it. And that's really just not true. He There's a book on him called This is Orson Welles that he and Peter Bogdanovich did, and there's a 131-page um chronology of his career, which is astonishing, the amount of work he did. Uh, you know, some people thought he was, in his later years, lazy, sitting around eating and drinking and making TV commercials and things like that, but he was always making films in his later years that just weren't seen very much because they were made outside the system. And I knew him from 1970 until his death in 1985, and I acted for him in his film, The Other Side of the Wind, for five years which uh, was his testament film about Hollywood, a, a grand satire of Hollywood. I played a young film critic who's asking John Huston sort of silly film buff questions, following him around. And, and uh, the film took 48 years to come out. It finally came out in 2018 from Netflix. You can watch it. And it was put together very well uh, by people following his, his uh, instructions. And he edited part of it. And, uh, but he did so much in his later years that I thought I would write this book to uh, acquaint people with those late works, which I've seen most of, and to uh, dispel the myth that he was inactive. When the, when he died, the New York Times obit said he had been at, inactive as a director for the past 
several years, and they had to correct that, actually, because it was just false. He was shooting film almost every day, and that's what he, he loved to do. But uh, when you work outside the system as a purely independent filmmaker, it's hard to get distribution, proper distribution, and it's hard to finish the films, hard to get money for them, although he put his own money into most of his work. So he left behind a lot of unfinished films, and people um, did attack he, him for that, which I think is unfair for a variety of reasons. Joe, did, uh, he, did he have money? Oh, yes, he, he was doing well. His cameraman, Gary Graver, who's a, a good friend of mine, good source, he shot almost everything Wells did in later years. He said Wells was making about 500000 a year from doing commercials and voiceovers mainly and acting and occasional films. So he was, <laughs> he was doing well. Uh, he liked uh, to live well. You know, he had a house in Hollywood and a house in Vegas. And, and, um, but he, he wasn't wasteful, uh, but he, he put a lot of his money into his own films, which is a, kind of a taboo in Hollywood, and they kind of didn't like that at all. And he was just a maverick and an independent filmmaker. That's the thrust of my book. That um, you know, a friend of mine, Douglas Gomery, first came up with this uh, theory. Wells was always an independent filmmaker, even when he had the resources of a major studio. Briefly in his early career, um, and then he went to Europe. He was blacklisted politically, and and spent uh, a long time in Europe and made uh, very independent films and, and uh, documentaries and television works and all kinds of experimental things and then he came back to America and he made one last studio film Touch of Evil which is great but the studio took it out of his hands and so he was very burned by that and so he wanted to work outside the system and that's considered um, you know a dangerous subversive thing in America and that's one reason he was attacked and uh, but when when the films are not shown widely you know the, so much of our consciousness is focused on what the big film is of the weekend, you know, that gets all the big advertising and stuff, and he didn't work that way. His films were regarded very highly in Europe, uh, more than in America, but a film like Chimes of Midnight, which I think is his best film, it's a Shakespeare adaptation he made in 1966, was uh, barely shown in America because the critic of the New York Times, Bosley Crowther, attacked it twice, and the distributor told me at the time that he got spooked by that and decided to basically not release it. And that film was really hard to see for a long time. So quite often when people would say Wells was a failure and has been, I'd say, have you seen Chimes of Midnight? And they'd kind of look at me with a blank look. Joe, you said said that uh, Wells was blacklisted. Are you talking about the McCarthy era? Well, before McCarthy, because he didn't discover communism uh, as a... Uh, a big topic until 1949-1950. People use that term. It started with the House uh, Committee on Un-American Activities and the Truman Loyalty Program in 1947. And um, Wells left America. For a long time, you'd read that he left in 1948. He had a couple of flops at the box office, uh, which didn't help his career, but... um, I found out through his FBI files that he was in Italy by November 47, the beginning of November. So he left right around, right after the time that the HUAC hearings took place in Washington, the big hearings at which uh, the Hollywood Ten were uh, testifying, and they were the first people blacklisted, and they, they all were sent to jail. And so he could see the handwriting on the wall, so he, he fled the country. He didn't want to be... Uh, 
Black Lives. He was always a progressive, and he had supported a lot of left-wing causes. He was never a communist. The FBI tried really hard to prove he was a communist, but he, he wasn't. And they started following him in 1941 because of Citizen Kane, because he antagonized William Randolph Hearst, who was a good friend of J. Edgar Hoover. So the FBI had a file on him, and they were tracking him and interviewing people until 1956. And he was on the Security Index, which was a list of people that J. Edgar Hoover had to put in concentration camps if there was a national emergency. And when the Korean War started, Hoover asked Truman to open camps and put dissidents in, in uh, the camps, and uh, Truman commendably uh, refused. But Wells was in uh, jeopardy, and um, he was in Red Channels, which was kind of the Bible of the blacklist. If you were in that, you were blacklisted. So he spent those years in Europe, and he was making films. Occasionally, he could make a film for an American studio or abroad as an actor. He had a few friends like Daryl Zanuck, uh, who, who still hired him to make films, and he came back to America briefly to do uh, King Lear for CBS in 1953. And to do that, you would have to sign a letter sort of saying, I'm sorry for my um, political associations and I won't do it again. But he wouldn't have named names like you would have had to do to clear yourself. He's, he, he was against that kind of thing and uh, very principled. And he came back a few times for CBS, so he was in the good graces of William Paley at CBS, but he didn't really come back until 56. Um, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz brought him back to make a TV pilot called The Fountain of Youth, which is really amazing experimental TV. Uh didn't sell, but it was briefly on TV and won the Peabody Award. And then he got to make Touch of Evil, but unfortunately that um, didn't please Universal. It's a great film. So he went back to Europe again and didn't come back till 1970. You know, it's funny when you... Um, well, first, I want to let the listeners know that uh, my guest, Joseph McBride, is a uh, professor in the School of Cinema at San Francisco State University and also a former reporter, reviewer, and columnist for uh, Daily Variety in Hollywood. Um, Joe, when people talk about Orson Welles, uh, and in the book even, you know, kind of alludes to that, whatever happened to Orson Welles, mm-hmm. they talk about him as, as being washed up and being a, a has-been, but they do it with a tremendous amount of respect. <laughs> How are those two things happening well, at the same time? Do you know what I mean? I'm not sure that I'm yeah. asking the question very well. Some some did, and some some were very disrespectful and very scornful. Uh, you know, some appalling comments that I quote in my book. It depends on who's writing it. Um, there were people who said, "Well, you know, he made this really great film, and then he made the Magnific- Magnificent Ambersons, which is a great film, but it was severely hacked up and partly reshot by RKO, and they fired him. And he was making a documentary for RKO, and they fired him for that." Uh, in South America for the U.S. government, and uh, that was a whole saga that is very complex. Um, so people will sometimes say, yeah, he made a couple of great films, but uh, they often were very scornful, uh, and, and some people had some respect for his, his work in Europe and independent work. More about Orson Welles with former reporter, film historian, and author Joseph McBride, straight ahead. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling authors, photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. And if you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it, you're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More about Orson Welles with former reporter, film historian, and author Joseph McBride straight ahead. A lot of people seem to um, have this impression that Orson Welles is a, a great filmmaker who just isn't making films anymore. Yeah, they they blamed him for that, and they blamed him. I mean, one thing there was a common trope was they would make fun of his weight. You know, he was very overweight in his later years, and uh, they would use that as a kind of metaphor for his uh, excess. And Jonathan Rosenbaum, who's a good Wells critic, yeah, Johnny said, Carson told the joke uh, that yeah. it was so hot in L.A. Um, and, and of course, the audience bellows back, "How hot was it?" And he said. Yeah. Uh, that pigeons were walking in the shadow of Orson Welles. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Welles liked Carson, but he was bothered that he would make those fat jokes, and other people would, too. And, um, you know, they, uh, Rosenbaum said that was a metaphor for Welles being an artist, that in America, being an artist is suspect, especially in Hollywood. If you run around saying you're an artist, and Welles did that, um, they try to destroy you. And uh, the people who survived for a long time tend to disclaim that they're artists like John Ford and then act modest, uh, even though they're very serious. But um, uh, the fatness, uh, you know, which was a glandular problem, it wasn't so much overeating, but um, they they kind of thought he just sat around and drank and ate and made these wine commercials. If you remember those sort of cheesy uh, uh, Palma Sun wine commercials were, were kind of embarrassing. Um, and, and back then, people just harped on them. But, you know, a lot of famous actors did commercials. Nobody blamed Laurence Olivier for doing Polaroid commercials, and nobody blamed uh, Henry Fonda for doing Lifesavers commercials and things. And, but Wells got attacked for that, and that's that's uh, that's how he made the money to make his uh, independent films, and they didn't give him credit for that because they didn't know about the films. A lot of them were unfinished, as they say, and they're, some are still unfinished and still are waiting to be put together like Don Quixote he worked on for about 30 years and there are parts of it scattered in various archives in Europe I've seen parts of it it looks very good and but you know somebody needs to come along and restore that it's just a tremendous job to restore his films as the other side of the wind I worked on that for a long time trying to raise money for it and you know I and other people put in tremendous effort and then this good team assembled it um you know, you can spend your whole life working for Orson Welles. Gary Graver, the cameraman, told me, oh, I don't know, 15 years after Welles died, he said, I'm still working for Orson. He literally meant it. He was still running around trying to sell the other side of the wind. And, and you know, you wind up living his life instead of yours. But um, it meant so much. Everybody who worked on a film for him, and I, I saw this with, uh, there were a lot of wonderful veteran actors in the other side of the wind, like Mercedes McCambridge and Edmund O'Brien and Paul Stewart and Tony O'Sellward and Norman Foster, all kinds of great people, John Houston, and they all felt that this was the greatest work they would ever do, and so they put up with a lot of uh, long hours. Wells worked very hard. He worked 18 hours a day, and he would wear out his young crew and, and me. And uh, he was f- so much fun to work with, too. That's another thing people don't realize. that When you see him portrayed in movies, he's always kind of an ogre. But he was very funny. He would tell stories and sing songs and make jokes and keep people entertained. And um, at the end of the day, I'd come home and my face would hurt because I was laughing so much. He had a wonderful laugh. 
and uh, but we thought we were doing the best thing we would ever do, and so we were willing to put up with low pay and whatever indignities took place. He was very good to the actors, very nice. He was tough on the crews. He was a perfectionist, so he was tough on the crews. But they were usually uh, young guys and a couple of women who were, you know, 19, 20 years old, and they were willing to work really hard. And and um, uh, it was really a, a thrill to be working with him, and everybody felt that who who uh, worked for him. Uh, some people didn't want to work for him because they didn't make enough money, you know, but a lot of great actors like John Gielgud, for example, would work for almost nothing for him and, um, you know, they thought it was an honor. With um, with Orson Welles, and, and because of his size, because of the wine commercials, um, it, there was this impression that he, as you put it, um, Joe, that, that he just sat around eating and drinking. But, um, but, but there was sort of an air about him that, that he was perhaps a gourmet um was he yeah. did he like the finer things oh yes he, he had very good taste in food and uh, everything else but he was um you know he loved great food but he um you know i, I was told by gary graver who had lunch with him almost every day that he said orson just basically ate a little chicken and a salad he said i never saw him eat to excess but he said, I, I don't know what he did at night. You know, sometimes people would report that he'd be eating a big thing of ice cream or something. But he, he had a weight problem. But, you know, people don't attack Hitchcock because he was fat or John Renoir because he was fat. But those Hitchcock made money, which Wells didn't. And Renoir was French. And in Europe, they didn't care. When Wells died, <clears throat> there was a 20-page obituary in Le Monde, very respectful. And in America, they were kind of knocking him. And... uh I think in our culture, which, you know, uh, American people have a problem with obesity, and uh, yet we attack people who are overweight. So I tried to demolish that in my book, and I think for a few years, that book originally came out in 2006. It took five years to write. It was a very hard book to write because I was trying to keep it within <clears throat> reasonable length bounds, which is hard when you're writing about Wells. You could go on forever, but... Um, I covered his whole career in less than 400 pages and re-examined his whole life and career in, in the the vantage point of him being an independent filmmaker from the beginning. Um, people, uh, you know, I thought I had demolished that myth, but it's you, you can see it coming back again sometimes. People like to look down on artists in America uh, because he didn't work in the commercial system. And, uh, you know, if you look at newspapers... Uh, you know, you see uh, films that are big, empty CGI spectacles get tremendous publicity, and then foreign films or smaller films don't get a lot of publicity in the press. And we're a very commercial society, and Hollywood is very commercial, and so Wells suffered from that. John Renoir said Wells was an aristocrat working in a popular medium. That was his problem. Lily Tomlin once said, uh, there's a reason they call it show business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a business, uh, you know. And Wells understood that. And he, uh, Charlton Heston said, who admired him a great deal and thought he was the most efficient director he ever worked with, which is a high compliment. Um, and he was responsible for Touch of Evil getting made. But he said the one thing Orson lacked as a filmmaker was a willingness to charm the money people. He said he could charm the pants off anybody else, but he just had a block about people who, you know, the heads of studios and, and producers, he didn't like 
uh, he had he had to spend a lot of time, you know, selling himself to them, and he didn't like that. And, and he could be rude to them and uh, wasn't uh, sufficiently, uh, you know, uh, courtly toward them. And uh, Heston thought that worked against him. And uh, it's something you have to do, I guess, if you're going to be a, a, a popular filmmaker. But he was not interested in being a popular filmmaker. And so that was perhaps a flaw, you could call it, if you want to. You, you know, you made a comment uh, that I kind of stepped on a moment ago, Joe, and my apologies. Um, and you were talking about sort of the way he carried himself, that he had sort of an aristocratic air about him. Right. Yeah, he was grand. He was. He said, uh, like in the theater, he said there are actors who play kings and others who don't. And he said, I am one who plays kings because of my size and demeanor and you know he had a great voice and uh grand manner kind of like a 19th century actor and uh but he had that in, in real life he was extremely charismatic and imposing and uh everybody was kind of in awe of him but he was a lot of fun to be with you know when you talk to him he was very uh funny and witty but he could he could be kind of overbearing uh as well too because i mean he was smarter than everybody else and he was, well, yeah, he, he, he had that, of, you know, I remember his, some of his appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and you had this sense that, you always had this sense he was the smartest one in the room, Yeah, and then he would just laugh and, and be so warm yeah. and engaging, and, and it was almost paradoxical. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he, he really had a fun personality, as they say, and... Um, he was a great storyteller, a great raconteur. Sometimes I think his greatest talent was as an orator. You know, he was like Winston Churchill. He was a tremendous speaker. And his radio shows, the, the one time he was truly popular in a broad sense was on the radio as a young man. He was a sensation. He had his own radio series, and he would adapt uh, famous uh, works. He would take... Uh, some you know big book and and they would adapt it into a one hour radio play, and they'd be very good uh, you can listen to a lot of them online for free uh they've been saved and digitized most of them and uh but he was he had that that was his favorite medium he loved the intimacy of radio and the way you could use your voice to conjure up uh, in your imagination a uh, whole world you know and uh, he thought that was just great and he was terrific with sound effects that was one of his true innovations as a filmmaker he brought a great use of sound and music into motion pictures and uh so but in, in films um you know he's a very serious filmmaker he didn't make uh, like john houston for example as a contrast he was a great filmmaker but he made a lot of schlocky films along the way he made a number of really great films but he would pay his dues by making some kind of uh, routine commercial film just to uh, keep bankable. And Wells never did that. He just wouldn't make a film if he couldn't put his whole life into it. With one exception, he made The Stranger, which is a pretty good film, but fairly conventional in the late 40s, but, you know, better than uh, most films of that kind. Um, but he would make unusual films that the audience, that the film, uh, Hollywood couldn't pigeonhole. He was like Stanley Kubrick in that sense. Each Kubrick film was different from each other one. And he was not predictable. And when you saw a Kubrick film, quite often the audience was a little mystified at first and didn't like them. And then 
five or ten years later, they'd say, oh, 2001 is a masterpiece, you know, and that happened with Wells a lot, too, but uh, studios like to be able to pigeonhole people, and, and they like predictable people, and Wells was never predictable. Well, and, and I think the audience sometimes um, is attracted to someone's name based on how they felt when they experienced their last project. Yeah, that they're happens expecting all the to time. have that again, and yeah. it's something different. And it's yeah, I I remember feeling that a little bit with uh, Monty Python's Jabberwocky. Yeah, you know I well, I'd yeah. seen a couple really fun and funny movies, and then all of a sudden there was this one that just that, you know had me looking like the RCA Victor dog. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Esquire once ran a piece on Tennessee Williams, and they quoted the reviews of his plays. And, you know, the first one, the Glass Menagerie, got great reviews, and then so did Streetcar Named Desire. And then they, he started getting bad reviews, and the reviews would usually say, well, um, uh, Camino Real is not as good as Streetcar. You know, Streetcar was great. Right. And then they'd say... Uh, Rose Tattoo is not as good as Camino Real, which was very good. And then they'd say the next one, uh, <laughs> Cat on Hot Tin Roof, was not as good as, as uh, Rose Tattoo. And that went on and on. They like people to stay in their niche. And uh, Wells didn't want to make another Citizen Kane. He really, uh, I mean, he made a kind of a riff on it with Mr. Arcadden in the 50s, but uh, it was kind of disguised. But you could see similarities. But he was always trying to strike out in new directions. And, if he had made a lot of the projects that he, he wanted to make, he wrote a lot of scripts that weren't filmed and had a lot of ideas that he couldn't get money for, uh, we would have seen different Orson Welles in many ways. He he, he had comedies he wanted to make and uh, oh, uh, literary adaptations and, and uh, period pieces and all kinds of fascinating projects and some contemporary films. and. Um, you know, it's a shame that he didn't get to make more films, but he and Kubrick both made 12 released films in their lifetime, and they both died at the age of 70, and Kubrick was regarded as a great success and a master, but he always worked for Warner Brothers in most of his career, and they supported him. He was fortunate to have that total support, and his films did rather well at the box office, and Wells's films did not have that kind of support, so they were not seen. So when you don't see somebody's work, you know, like The Immortal Story, Chimes of Midnight, uh, the later films, uh, and then when he didn't finish a film, they would really attack him for it. But in literature, you know, as I say, did this, do people attack Schubert for writing The Unfinished Symphony, or do they attack Franz Kafka for not finishing his novels? No, they don't. You know, they, uh, literature is held to a different standard, but in films, you have to be very... Uh, pleasing a wide audience, and he, he never really had the knack to do that in, in films like he did in radio. <laughs> People watching movies, are it's almost as if they're waiting to see those two words, the end. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. What, what made Orson Welles go from radio to film? Well, he, he was um, given a lot of offers to make films because of the radio shows. He also was a great theater director as a young man. It's amazing that he directed Macbeth for the Negro Theater Project of the Federal Theater uh, with you know an all-black cast in Harlem and uh, set the play in Haiti. He was regarded as a tremendous success. 20-year-old white guy directing a black uh, cast in Macbeth, and, and it went wonderfully. And... Um, 
he did a lot of other shows on Broadway, and he was really just a, a wunderkind. And they they were offering him Hollywood contracts, and he turned them down until he could get carte blanche. And he had this amazing contract with RKO, where they gave him basically free reign on Citizen Kane um, as long as they had cast approval and story approval. And the head of RKO, George Schaefer, really stood up to him when Hearst and Hollywood Studios tried to tried to actually burn that film. But then on Magnificent Ambersons, which is a great film based on the Booth Tarkenton uh, novel, um, he was out of the country making this film for the government, which he couldn't avoid doing because it was a, for the war effort. He was in Brazil. And uh, in his absence, they had a bad preview, and they hacked it up. It was uh, the wrong time for that kind of somber film about the decline of uh, American aristocracy in the old America being submerged by industrialization came out at a time when the country was gearing up for the war effort with people working in factories 24 hours a day and and he was attacking the automobile etc and it seemed subversive and so they just eviscerated the film there's, there's a guy named Josh Grossberg who's has an expedition going to Rio de Janeiro he was down there recently for three weeks he's going back again and he's trying to find the missing complete print of that film. Wells took a 131-minute version of the film down there to do final editing, which um, the studio thwarted him from doing while they were hacking it up in Hollywood. And he, he apparently left a print down there, and Josh is hoping to find it. This is would be one of the great finds of all film history, because that may have been possibly the greatest film ever made. It's my favorite film. Very beautiful film as it is, but there's too much of the studio's interference in it and a horrible ending and all that. Um, but he made some other good films in Hollywood. He made The Lady from Shanghai and Macbeth, uh, you know, a, a kind of minimalistic, uh, very impressive film version of Macbeth, but they messed around with that one too. So he had trouble in post-production with people uh, trying to redo his films. But then he went to Europe and made Othello for four years, you know, with his own money and um, he was very adventurous as a filmmaker, and he experimented a lot, and, and we, we admire him for those qualities today, but they were the same qualities that got him into trouble. And uh, so <laughs> right. I tried to redeem his reputation with my book, and um, you know I tried to show people the range and, and breadth of what he was doing, and, and, and I've updated the book with uh, I was just an gonna epilogue. Ha- yeah, I was going to ask you about yeah. that. It's... Um First of all, when did the book come out? And and now it's an updated version with, uh, as you were starting to say, a new epilogue and a dozen new images. Um, yeah. When did it well, come I out, did. and why the update? Well, I, I've done three books on Wells. I did a critical study of him called Orson Wells when I was very young. I was 22 to 26, I guess, when I wrote that. And it was published in 1972 by the British Film Institute. And then I did a short book on his acting career. It's the only book on his acting career called Orson Welles, Actor and Director. And then I did Whatever Happened to Orson Welles in 2006 for the University Press of Kentucky. And it's it's never been out in paperback until now. That's one reason they're bringing it back. And I did an epilogue to bring his career up to date with two major films that have come out since I wrote my book. The Other Side of the Wind, the film that I'm in, which was his grand project of his later years, uh, he tried really hard to finish it. He ran into all kinds of bizarre problems financially and legally and politically even. Um, 
and he couldn't finish it. He edited 41 minutes of it, but uh, that finally came out, and so I, I, I give it a, a kind of, a, you know, a critical account of what the final version was like and uh, in the epilogue. And I also talk about a film called Too Much Johnson, which was rediscovered miraculously in uh, 2005 in Italy. It turned up in a warehouse. This is completely unexpected. A warehouse in Portononi, Italy, had some old cans of film that were decaying and starting to smell bad and everything. And there was a local film buff, and the guy who ran the warehouse said, do you want, to, want these cans of film? And he looked at it, and he realized that it looked like something that might be an Orson Welles film. And John, Welles made this before Citizen Kane. He was going to do a stage play adaptation. He did one of Too Much Johnson, the play by William Gillette, which is a sex farce set in the 1890s, very funny play. And he was going to intersperse it with um, film segments shot in New York and uh, Cuba, although uh, Cuba was filmed in Long Island. And uh, he was going to do uh, as much as maybe 40 minutes of uh, film. And so he shot about well, what we have is, I think, 68 minutes of footage that is partly edited by Wells and partly not. There's some repetitions and things. And, and uh, But it's it's wonderful. It's beautifully shot. The print is in good shape. It was preserved. You can see it online for free. And uh, Joseph Cotton stars in it and Arlene Francis. And it's very delightful. Wow. Uh, it's a kind of a homage to silent films. It's, it's silent and... Uh, Shot in the style of uh, Laurel and Hardy and um, uh, Harold Lloyd, another uh, silent filmmaker as well as loved. And Cotton is a daredevil climbing around roofs and uh, <laughs> uh, running around the streets of New York. And you see a lot of old New York. It's very nostalgic. A lot of it has been torn down since then. But it's really delightful, and it shows that Wells knew a lot about filmmaking before Citizen Kane. And one of the myths about him, which he fostered, was that he came into films with Kane and he was a virgin cinematically and knew nothing about it and learned as he went along, which is a way of showing what a genius he was, you know. But I discovered back... That's how in, he got away with some things. Yeah, he would... Yeah, he, he you know, he had this myth of already and he was working with a great cameraman, Greg Tolan, but he he would... Uh, he, he consulted with all the great experts at the studio. He was very respectful of uh, older... Uh, technicians and filmmakers, and um, uh, he learned from them. But he had he had experimented with film. I discovered a film he made in 1934 as a 19-year-old guy called The Hearts of Age. I found that in the late 60s through a professor of mine, Russell Merritt. It was in a library in Connecticut, and I found this uh, short film that's about eight minutes long and rediscovered it. And Wells said, why did Joe have to find that film? You know, <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he was embarrassed by it, but it's it's actually a very clever, uh, it's kind of a spoof of avant-garde films of that period, and he plays a, a death figure, and it's it's very kind of arrestingly shot, but it's juvenilia, and uh, he was a little embarrassed by it, but he, he also, you know, I, I sort of called his bluff by showing that he had experimented with films before uh, Kane, but uh, Too Much Johnson is quite an elaborate film, and it shows that he knew... Uh, how to shoot a film, and, and he had a good cameraman, and he had, he, he would uh, the, the camera angles and the lighting are terrific, and you know he wasn't you know, a cinematic version. 
More about Orson Welles with former reporter, film historian, and author Joseph McBride straight ahead. From the Tom Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places. So be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You know, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all. It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. 
Your trip begins at michigan.org. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. The uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More about Orson Welles with former reporter, film historian, and author Joseph McBride straight ahead. You mentioned, um, I, I think you're the first person I've ever heard mention William Gillette that wasn't talking about Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, right. He was famous for his Sherlock Holmes play that was a staple in the theater for many years, but he was one of those good old playwrights from that period. And, and, and I saw a uh, silent film. Did you? With William Gillette as Sherlock Holmes. Oh, yes. It still just, exists. That's just right. within yeah. the last couple of years. And I didn't even know one existed. And all of a sudden, you know, I, I was, you know, scrolling through the channels and boom, there's, you know, cool. Sherlock Holmes late at night. Well, yeah, that I think that was rediscovered, too. And But to find a Wells film in a warehouse somewhere is kind of bizarre. Oh, that's, yeah, that's amazing. But you know, strange I, things happen in, in film discovery. That's why Josh Grossberg is prowling around Rio and trying to find it in various collections and, and archives and things. Well, with this uh, with this new update out, what's, what's next for Joseph McBride? Well, I've, I've been very busy you know, lately. I did a book on Billy Wilder, who I love, called uh, Billy Wilder Dancing on the Edge, which is a... a critical study. He had a very long, complex career in in Europe and Hollywood, and I studied yeah, all the Yeah, I had someone on the show recently who had just done a book about his uh, his work in Europe. Oh, was that the uh, Noah Eisenberg, the author? Yep, uh, editor yep. Of Noah, the book? Noah was on the show, and we talked about the early days of Billy Wilder. We talked about, you know, after he came to America, too. But Yeah, yeah. Noah edited a book of his journalism, which is good. And um, there are two books of his journalism in German, which I read earlier. Um, and Noah's book is a selection from that. Uh, there, there's more to it than those other books. Uh, he was a very active journalist in Vienna and Berlin, and you see the echoes of his journalism throughout his film work, and the germs of some of the uh, films can be traced back, like Some Like It Hot. He he did a couple pieces on a girls' band that he really cut the hots for, and he dated one of the girls. And it's it's like the girls' band in Some Like It Hot, and you can see all the, they arrive by train, just like in the film, and and um, so he was a lively journalist writing human interest stories. So I, I'm an old journalist, and so I was attracted to that. He was, I think, a journalist all his career. He was doing cinematic exposés of American social problems. Um, Joan Didion, who just died recently, uh, wrote a wonderful uh, review of Kiss Me Stupid, which is a film of his that was reviled by 
almost every American reviewer except her in Vogue magazine, and she said it was a film that shows the true country of despair of an America we don't want to know about, you know. And she said people walk out because they they realize that Wilder means it, and it was a very corrosive satire of American sexual hypocrisy. It was ahead of its time in 1964, but he was always pushing the envelope of censorship and um, doing adventurous projects. So I did that book, and that came out October 26th from Columbia University Press, and I've got a new book um, uh, coming out on the Coen brothers in um, March uh, from... Anthem Press. It's called The Whole Dern Human Comedy, Life According to the Coen Brothers. <laughs> it's it's a shorter critical study than I usually write, but I, it was kind of a fun, loose, uh, adv- adventurous, uh, casual book because they're kind of, that, that's the kind of guys they are. So I had fun, a lot of fun writing that. I, I admire them. I think they're wonderful writers and directors, and they, uh, they're kind of like uh, the closest we have to Billy Wilder today because they satirize American society in very corrosive and and funny ways, you know, like Wilder did. He made the, the bitter pill go down by leavening it with comedy, and they do that. And they, they mix genres daringly like Wilder did to some extent. And and he he made films in a lot of different genres, and they, they mix them up within the same film. Often they'll have violence and comedy together. They're somewhat controversial for that. So I had fun writing about them, and I, I tend to pick projects about people who I think are misunderstood or underrated. Or, you know, Billy Wilder got a lot of honors in his lifetime, but they wouldn't let him make a film the last 21 years of his life, which I think was horrible because his last film, Buddy Buddy, was a flop. But he made some very good late films that I love, which did not do well at the box office because they're out of sync. They're too romantic and gentle for the times. Well, which is ironic, uh, Private Life of Sherlock Holmes and Avanti and films like that. So uh, I've been championing his work and writing about it for more than 50 years, and I interviewed him a lot. And so I was trying to, you know, uh, acquaint people with those later films and to put put his whole career in context. And uh, so I think he's underrated to, to some extent today. You don't read about him as much as you do, say, Hitchcock or Wells or, or people like that that are more often shown in uh, classes and revivals well, and things. But Wilder has a lot of fans. The book is Whatever Happened to Orson Welles, and uh, we're we're out of time, but, Joe, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? Well, I had one, and then I, I kind of lost it because I got so busy writing books in the last couple of years I forgot to renew the thing. Um, but I, on Amazon, there's an uh, author page which has a long biography of me, and Wikipedia does too. But um, I, I have a lot of uh, books on Amazon. I've done 24 books now, I guess, and uh, uh, most of them are in print. And uh, I'm, I'm bringing back some of the older ones into print. I'm updating some of the older ones. And, well, between uh, uh, being a professor at the School of Cinema at San Francisco State University and writing a couple of dozen books, I'm glad you had the time to talk with me today, <laughs> Joseph. Well, thank you. Joseph Tom, McBride, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tom. It was wonderful to talk to you. And keep Appreciate up, it. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And with that, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. Straight. <laughs> 
Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com Jackie, you take it here. Should I be forgotten days of All right, uh, Caroline, now you come in. For all time, my dear. For all time. Oh, now everybody take it together with vigor. like to explain how it came to pass that I got fat. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I got fat as a public service. When I was a child, my mother said to me, clean the plate because children are starving in Europe. And I might point out that that was years before the Marshall Plan was ever heard of. So I would clean the plate four, five, six times a day because somehow I felt that that would keep the children from starving in Europe. But I was wrong. They kept starving and I got fat. So I would like to say to every one of you, who is either skinny or in some other way normal. When you walk out on the street and you see a fat person, do not scoff at that fat person. Oh no. Take off your hat. Hold it over your heart. Lift your chin up high. And in a proud, happy voice, say to him, Hail to thee, fat person. You kept us out of war. Hey, that wraps it up for the week, for the day, for the year. I want to say thanks to all the guests that were on this New Year's uh, Eve edition of the Tom Sumner program. Starting with this last hour with Joseph McBride, McBride talking about Orson Welles. Before that, we talked with Mark Strauss about growing up in New York. And we started out this morning, and I hope you appreciated looking back at some of the people we lost last year. But anyway, have a great holiday, a great weekend. We're going to jump over the weekend and start a new year. I hope you'll come with us. Good night, everybody, and happy new year. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. 
most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.